All right, we are in Genesis chapter 24 today. Genesis 24, picking up a sermon uh, that we started uh, last week. And uh, we are back in our study in Genesis, and we're kind of uh, working through this theme of legacy. And so while you're getting your Bible and kind of getting settled, let me just say a quick prayer for the sermon. God, thank you. Uh, for uh, your word. We come under it and we want to hear from you this morning and uh, just pray that uh, just that my heart would be settled in the spirit, um, that you would uh, give me a mind and words that would glorify you and, and be accurate biblically. And I pray that as a church, we would just be receptive uh, to what you're saying to us today. In Jesus name. Amen. I uh, watched this weekend, for the first time, I watched the movie Selma. How many of y'all have seen that movie? Amazing, amazing movie. And I really like the Martin Luther King Jr. quote where he says that our lives are not fully lived unless we are willing to die for those that we love and for what we believe. Isn't that a powerful idea? We are not, we are not fully living until we are willing to die for those we love and what we believe. And we've been talking about legacy. And one of the things that we started talking about last week is kind of like, you know, when I die, uh, when the end comes and I pass from this world to the next and, and people might reflect a, a, upon my life, what will they say? Will I leave a legacy of faith? Will I leave a legacy that matters? You know, the one thing I was talking to somebody about this week is just the fact that, you know, when it comes to legacy, you will leave a legacy. You will leave an influence in this world. Your life, the way God made you, created and made in the image of God, the way God created you was to leave a ripple effect, was to leave a wake, was to leave something that will impact other people. So it's not a question of if you're going to leave a legacy. The question is what kind of legacy will you leave? What kind of wake, what kind of ripple, what kind of influence will you have? And we thought last week that it might be wise to, in order to leave a good wake, a good ripple effect, that we might consider the end from the beginning. In our culture, we don't think about death a lot. We try to avoid the fact that we're mortal people, that our life is temporary. But as believers, God encourages us. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Lord, help me to count the number of my days so that I might gain a heart of wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2 says, it's good to go to the house of mourning, for the living take it to heart. The Bible literally says it's better for us to go to a funeral and to consider our life than it is to go to a house of feasting and partying to consider our life. Isn't that true? Because the moment we look at our mortality, the moment we remember that we live a very short time span, that gives us urgency. That means we got to make this count. That means we got to leave a life of significance. And so last week, as we began to consider the end from the beginning, as we began to consider our, our funeral, the ultimate epitaph of our life, we thought that the first thing we might need to do is we need to be resident exiles. Now, just quickly, let me remind you what resident exiles are. We are, as believer, resident exiles. That means we live in this world full time, but we are not citizens of this world. Can I get an amen? amen? The Bible says that our citizenship belongs in heaven. The Bible says that we belong to God. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, it says that Abraham was going to a city by faith that whose architect and builder was God. He was a citizen of heaven. And yet God puts us on earth for divine purposes and he wants us to live in this world full time. He wants us to be residents and, 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 and living with and in the world even though we're not of the world. I was reading even this last week and I thought it was a good summary just to remind us of what of the ground we, we traveled over last week, but I was reading uh, Timothy Keller's book, uh, Center Church. And in that book, he talked about it this week. I, it's one of those things where I read it, and I was like, why didn't I read that like two weeks ago before last week? You know what I mean? But he said, listen, there are some Christians who are bubble Christians. And bubble Christians are unwilling emotionally to engage with their world, to engage with unbelievers They don't have the emotional or financial motive to engage and serve people who are not believers, to serve unbelievers in this world. They want to keep their life and their family in their bubble. They only want to have Christian friends. They only want to be with Christian people. They only want to be in the safe neighborhood. They never want to venture out and and be in exile that's serving their world. And that's a problem, isn't it? Thank goodness Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't stay in his suburb and in heaven and say, I'm never going to get close to those people who don't know God. Jesus said, I'm going to leave heaven. I'm going to go into the world of darkness and be a light. Jesus said to his people, you are a shining city on a hill. You are salt and light. Sometimes God calls us to come out of our bubbles. But here's the other thing. Timothy Keller talks about the second problem. Not only some Christians are bubble Christians, but other Christians are blend-in Christians. That the driving motive, the driving motive of their life is to be acceptable. The driving motive of their life is that everybody might like them. And so they become so incognito, so blended into culture that nobody even knows that they're followers of Jesus. Nobody looks at them and goes, I don't know what Fred believes. And Fred secretly is believing in Jesus. Keller brings up a a great illustration. He he talks about the fact that uh, 40 years ago, the gay community, the homosexual community was hidden. You might have a friend and not even know that they were gay. You might not even know that they lived this alternate lifestyle because they didn't want to be rejected. And you never knew. But now, 40 years later, many of us know somebody somewhere along the line that's homosexual because they've come out of their closets and and they're unafraid anymore. And they come out and they say, this is who I am. And whether you like that or not, and of course, as a church, we believe that sexuality is between a man and a woman in the context of a covenant of marriage. Anything outside of a husband and a wife having sex is sinful. But whether you, whether you like what's happening or not, they have more courage than a lot of Christians because 40 years later, Christians have become what the gay community was 40 years ago. You might be working with somebody who's a Christian and you didn't even know it because they're so blended in that nobody knows that they believe in Jesus. You and I, if they're going to come out of their closets, it's time for us to come out of our closets. If they have courage to live for something that's not right... We need to love them for sure, but we certainly need to equal their passion and their courage and say, this is who I am. 
I am blood-bought. I am purchased. I had fallen short of God's glory. I fell in so many levels, and yet Jesus came. And he died for me. And he rose again on the third day. And he loves me, and I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm willing to live full-time with you. I'm willing to deal with you Hittites. I'm willing to love you Hittites. Remember Abraham working with the Hittites last week. And I'm not going to blend in so much that nobody knows who I am in Christ. They're going to know. I'm going to raise the flag. I'm going to tell them. I'm going to work Jesus into regular conversations. I'm going to tell people, my God lives, and he loves, and he's at work in my life. And I can remember being lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. And I'm living here with you, but I'm on my way to live with Jesus. And I got things to do. You want to come with me? You want to come with me? Let's go, man. Let's, let's be salt and light. Let's live for Jesus. You want to come? And let's live for Jesus. And then one day, we'll leave this world and we'll live with him in his new world that he's rebuilding for you and I. And we will live with him in a mansion that he has built. We are resident exiles, neither bubble Christians or blended in, but living as servants and as witnesses and as light and as salt. That is what it means to be a resident exile. And Abraham demonstrated that beautifully, exquisitely in Genesis 23. But We closed our sermon last week going, okay, that preaches really good, or at least I feel like it preaches really good. But what is the quality that will fuel and sustain us as we are resident exiles. Because I don't know about you, but it's hard being a resident exile. It's hard getting that balance right. Sometimes I lean towards blending in, and other times I lean towards bubbling up. I got four daughters, man. I don't want boys coming around them. Can I get an amen? amen. I like that bubble. So I need to know what is the ultimate secret that Scripture gives me that can fuel and motivate and guide the internal passions of my heart and my mind to live as, an, as a resident exile. What are the things that God gives to me so that the stream of my consciousness lives for God and comes out of the bubble but never blends in? What is that quality? And the second thing I would say in the rest of our sermon today is going to be focused on this. We need to be sustained... By the steadfast love of God. It is the steadfast love of God. And when we leave Genesis 24, or when we leave Genesis 23 and we come to Genesis 24, we come to a great love story. Abraham last week purchased a, a piece of land. He was a landowner. This week he's a matchmaker. And Abraham knows he's on his way out. He's an old man. His life is limited. And he knows that the one thing he needs to do as a patriarch and as a believer in God and the promises that God has given to him, one of the things he needs to do is find a wife for his son Isaac. In fact, the only way that the covenant promises of God can come true is if Isaac has a wife, and that Isaac becomes the patriarch, and there's a matriarch. So Abraham calls, to, calls his most faithful servant. We believe the name of that servant is Eleazar, which you read about in Genesis 15, but it's, you know, it's an important point. We don't get his name here in Genesis 24. He's a nameless servant. 
I think that's kind of cool. I, kind of, I like to imagine my own life, my own name kind of put by that servant. I'd like you to consider yourself this servant that Abraham sends on this errand. Abraham calls him together and he says to him, you're my most faithful servant. And you and I, we're old men now. And we've been through so much. But I've got one more task for you. And it's the most important task I've ever given to you in my life. I need you to go to the land where God called me from, Haran. And I need you to find a wife for Isaac. And I need that woman to be willing to leave her land and to come here to the promised land to marry Isaac. Now it's very important that you do not get a Canaanite woman for Isaac. Now, the reason why it says that, by the way, in the Bible is not for ethnic reasons. It's for religious reasons. The Canaanites were, were polytheistic, worshiping God's people. They sacrificed their children for the gods. They were, they were, it was a death culture. It was a godless culture. And there was no way that Isaac could marry a Canaanite woman. So he says, you can't get a Canaanite woman. You've got to promise me that. Now, this servant, he's an old man. He's like, now, dude. I mean, I'm not saying that the Hebrew says dude, but... He says to Abe, he says, he says now, dude, you're, you're sending me on a 400-mile on a track, and I'm an old man. And are you sure this is what you want me to do? And what if she never comes back? And Abraham says, you will not fail if, she, if you don't find anybody, but I need you to go and do this for me. Now, significantly, when Abraham sends him on this journey to find a wife in verse 7, look at Genesis 24 and verse 7. It's a a key verse, really, at the beginning of this kind of narrative in this story. Abraham says this, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me, and who swore to me, To your offspring I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. It's significant. That's significant. And the reason why is because Abraham brings up the angel. You could circle that angel right there. Circle it if you have a pen. You know what I'm saying? That's the same angel that provided the sacrifice in Isaac's place. Remember when Abraham took Isaac up on that mountain to sacrifice him? And the angel provided a sacrifice substitute. The angel was the one that visited Abraham and Sarah and said, you're going to have a son. The angel was the one who was leading the other three angels into Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like that TV show. Do y'all watch the Bible TV show? And they were like ninjas. You know what I'm saying? This was the head ninja angel. But it's significant because what we believe is that this angel is actually a pre-incarnate Christ. Now, you might differ on that, but here's the big point. When God sends you and I on a journey, he never sends us by ourselves. You are not alone. And that's very, why is that important? Because God is going to call you to do things that are, that is impossible for you. And if you're only doing things in your life that you can do in your own strength, then you are not walking in the will of God for your life. This servant was being sent to do something he could not do. And Abraham says, I know it seems tough, and it is tough, and it is impossible. But the good news is this. Jesus is with you. Jesus said in John 8, Abraham saw me. He knew me. Abraham knew Jesus in some form. And I believe Abraham's saying, man, God's angel is with you. God's angels are with you. And when you go on that long journey, you are not going alone. I'm encouraged by that. 
Because you know what? I face things every day that are impossible for me. I face things in my life where I go, I can't do this. I simply cannot get this done. But then I remember that God is with me. That his angel encamps around me. That I'm never alone. That anything he gives to me, he will be with me. And so, encouraged by this exhortation from Abraham, uh, commissioned to this difficult task that seems impossible, Eleazar goes on this 400-mile journey to a place called Haran. You, you can imagine the fertile crescent in Mesopotamia. And he goes up there, and as soon as he gets to a well where there's people, he does something remarkable. Uh, it seems like he gets there really fast, but it takes a long time. It's a long journey. And, and the writer of Genesis is not interested in, in telling us all the ups and downs of that journey. He wants to get us right to the place when he arrives to where he's going. And he comes up to a well. And look at verse 12, Genesis 24, verse 12. It says that the servant prays. It says, and he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. And show steadfast love to my servant, Abraham. This is important. You can mark out into the margins of your Bible. I've got it in the margins of my Bible. This is the first ever spontaneous prayer recorded in Scripture. This is the first time ever that somebody is recorded without ritual, without a sacrifice, without stones or a tree or any kind of ritualistic, a spontaneous prayer to God. And note that he prays standing. He says, God, I need help today. I need you to guide and provide for me today. I need you to be with me today. And I love that because here's this nameless servant who can pray to God spontaneously. And you and I even more so, can't we? We can talk to God. We can talk to God because Jesus has earned the right for us to talk to God spontaneously. And note what he says here in verse 13. He says, Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. But what was important about Rebecca was not her outward appearance. It was her heart of service. Note this. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly, notice the action words, quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. And so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. Camels are like the escalades of the time, right? Big Important. Nobody had camels except for the richest people. And here's the thing about camels. They require 25 gallons of water. 
And this woman shows up in answer to prayer. I mean, he pray, he's literally not even done praying. In answer to prayer, boom, there she is. He's like, now the woman that I'm looking for is the one that's going to offer me water. She's like, would you like some water? And the woman I'm looking for, God, I need her to offer the camels water. I'm willing to. And she takes, and she feeds it, serves him, takes 25 gallons. There's 10 camels, a fleet of camels. And she fills them all up with water. You see that? And he goes, man, this is awesome. And his response is amazing because he stands at the beginning praying. But when he finds out that this is the woman, and it's very clearly this is God's answer to his prayer, Abraham's prayer. This is Isaac's future wife. No, go jump down to verse 26. He bows in worship and in thanks to God. It says the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me. That word led me in the Hebrew, it stands for leading through difficulty, leading through treacherous and difficult terrain and difficult life circumstances. The Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. The key word in that whole narrative is the steadfast love of God. Did you see it at the very beginning when he prays? Verse 12, steadfast love of God. And then verse right there in the middle, in verse uh, uh, 14 it is, by this I shall know you have shown steadfast love to my master. And then when he bows and worship and thanks, he thanks God for what? Steadfast love and faithfulness. And we ask ourselves an important question. What is this stuff that we call steadfast love of God? What is he claiming? What is the love of God according to Genesis? The steadfast love in your NIVs, it's faithfulness and kindness. In other translations, there are all kinds of different English words. Mercy. Kindness, faithfulness, steadfast love, all of those multiple words sum up a very small Hebrew word called hesed. And hesed is a kind of love that's a covenant love. Everybody say covenant. It is a claiming and believing and walking in a covenant love of God. And what is that covenant love? It is that God had come into relationship with Abraham, even though he didn't deserve it, and in an unconditional way said, I have chosen you, I'm in relationship with you, and I've got promises for you. I've got promises of land, I've got promises of children, and I've got promises of you being a worldwide blessing. That is my promise to you, and I'm going to do that in your life. And as soon as God comes into covenant love with Abraham, nothing could separate Abraham from that love. No hardship, no tribulation, not not even failure on Abraham's part could separate him from the love of God. And that's important because we saw how many times Abraham failed in his life, didn't we? The love of God, the steadfast love of God, the covenant love of God is a binding, unconditional love. And ultimately what it does for those in whom he's... In steadfast love with is it means that he provides, he guides, he protects. Ultimately, he has the back. When God is in love with you, like steadfast love, in covenant love with you, he's got your back. He will provide and protect for you. 
one of the great passages I found on this very concept of God's covenant love with his children comes from Isaiah 54. Please be patient with me. It's so powerful, though, if you'll just open up your minds and your hearts to this passage. Brought my big Bible today. Uh, Amen. (laughs) I don't know why I said that. Isaiah 54, verses 10 and follow. Listen to this. This is so good. God says through Isaiah, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love, has said, shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. Important to note, that's not psychological peace. That's like peace in terms of my friendship shall not be removed. Says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony. And lay your foundations with sapphires, and I will make your pinnacles of a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. For you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication from me declares the Lord. That steadfast love. You see, we, we like to think of love as kind of fluffy and therapeutic. And uh, it's kind of like, a, uh, you know, love. I just, I just kind of blindly just kind of, kind of walk along and let us all get along. But see, God knows how the world works. And he says, when I have steadfast love with you, I got your back, man. This is not romantic, pink, Hollywood love. This is like, I have got your back and I will be with you in the storm. I will be with you through the difficulty. And ultimately, where I'm taking you through, even though you might be going through the pits right now, I'm taking you to the palace and no weapon can stop that. Paul would say in the New Testament that nothing could get in between the love of God with his children. God says there's no way death can get between you and I. There's no way tribulation can get between you and I. There's no way famine can get in between you and I. There's no way loss of job can get between you and I. There's no way that poverty can get between you and I. There's no way that anything can get between you and I. I love you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God and Jesus Christ. Isn't that warming? Isn't that empowering? Isn't that, that's like, that's the stuff I'm looking for. And if nobody's got my back, God's got my back. Because he's in covenant with me. God loves me. And if you are in Jesus Christ, he loves you. Now, some people might object. They might say, well, now hang on now. Hang on there, big boy. Doesn't God love everybody? Doesn't God love All the children of the world. Doesn't God love believers and unbelievers equally? And I would say this. No. 
God loves all, here's what J.I. Packer said, which I think is helpful. God loves all people in some ways, but he loves some people in all ways. What that means is there's a common love that God gives to all people. He provides rain and sunshine. He gives, he gives talents and gifts to all people. Even unbelievers have qualities of common grace rooted in the image of God in them to where they can do great things. But there is a more special kind of love. Because that common love is not said love. That's not steadfast love. What we're talking about with steadfast love is a covenant, more special love that God gives to us in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says when we are united with Jesus by faith, we have walked into a deeper realm of God's love and provision and guidance and protection and covenant relationship. And the question for you and I is not, does God love me in a broad way? Because he does. The question is, have I walked into a more specific kind of covenant love that nothing can separate me from? That's an important distinction. Now, when we think about qualities of this love, there's a few things I want to communicate to you with the time we have remaining about this love. You know, I was watching uh, Finding Nemo the other night for the 50th millionth time. I love Finding Nemo, and I, I, like, I like Dora the fish. Isn't that her name? Am I getting the name right, Dora? And she has the show. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Yeah, you got it right, Pastor Josh. Thank you. Dora has short-term memory. Remember that? And she can't remember. You know, she'll be like swimming along. Hi. And then she forgets who you are, and she swims, and then she forgets. You know what I'm saying? But there's that powerful part at the end. When... Nemo's dad, what's his name? I, I don't know why I don't know this. What? Martin? Martin. What's that? Marlon. Oh, yeah, baby, sorry. Sherry's helping me out here. Marlon. And Marlon's upset because he thinks Nemo's died. And so Marlon looks at Dory and says, I've got to go. I just can't, I can't hang out with you anymore. I've got to go. And she's overwhelmed because she's like, you can't leave me. You can't leave me. Because ever since I've been with you, I, I remember things. I, I, I don't forget as easily. I, I, I need you in my life so I'll remember. And, and if you leave, I'll, I'll, I'll start forgetting things again. I'm getting the lines all wrong, but you know what I'm saying. And he says, I'm sorry, i got to go. And you know, when I think about the qualities of covenant love, I think when you walk remembering God's covenant love, you know what it does? It helps you remember. It helps our spiritual amnesia. It helps us to remember things so that we will walk faithfully, will be guided and empowered. You see, love from God is an internal motive, not only an outward uh, uh, objective reality, though it's that, but it's a, it's a motivator. And as we walk in the qualities of God's steadfast love, like this servant journeying on this long journey, granted he had a fleet of camels, that was helpful, but he needed to remember, and he kept confessing and walking in the steadfast love of God so that he wouldn't forget the things he needed to remember. So what are the qualities of steadfast love that helps us as we walk through life? Here's a, a few qualities of God's love, and so important, too, so that we can make a distinction between worldly, psychological, kind of fluffy love, and then like God's covenant has said love. And the first quality I want to point out about God's covenant steadfast love is that it's, a, it's from a superior partner to an inferior person. When God comes into relationship with a human being, in the ancient world, a covenant was there was a stronger party to a weaker party. 
There was somebody who entered into a relationship with somebody who was weaker than them. And the ultimate picture of that is God coming into relationship with us. God is the strong one. He's the superior one. And we are the inferior ones. You're like, why is that important? The reason why that's important is because our relationship with God is not based on equality. It's not like, well, God loves me because he has to love me, or I've earned God's love, or somehow religiously I can do all the right things, and then God will have to love me because he'll be obligated to love me. No, 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 that's not how covenant love works. God loves us based on the quality of his strength, the quality of his superiority. And when he enters into a relationship with an inferior partner, he's saying, when you need something, I will be the strong one. When you are weak, I will be strong. When you can't do it, I will be there to do it for you. The battle is not yours it will be mine because I am the strong partner in this relationship David Wells in a book uh, on the holy love of God says you know what's happened is is that God's love and who God is has disappeared into self and we begin to define his love kind of subjectively therapeutically as opposed to saying, no, no, I'm weak and he's strong. And what that does for you and I, guys, as human beings, what that does when we remember that God is the superior one and we are inferior, he's strong and we are weak, what that does for us does is two things. Number one, it evicts pride from our life. You cannot be prideful or arrogant or egotistical, or be full of yourself when you remember that your whole life is sustained by a stronger partner. God says, I love you in your weakness, and when you remember that, you won't get prideful. We've talked about this as a church a lot, but what happens when you get in a religious context, people start feeling like, yeah, God should love me, and I'm probably more worthy of God's grace than other people. After all, I go to church. But you see, God's covenant love is, no, no, you're weak. And I'm coming to you out of strength. I'm coming to you out of my own sufficiency and superiority to overflow in my completeness to love you. I am coming into relationship to celebrate my strength. Did you know that God doesn't love us because he needs us? Can I get an amen? amen. God is complete. God loves us because he's already complete. He's celebrating his completeness by coming into my little weak life and loving me, sometimes despite myself. That is encouraging because it evicts pride. But the second thing that that kind of superior to inferior position does is it ignites courage. Not only does this kick out pride and arrogance, but it gives me courage to do the things I could. Why was the servant, this old man, willing to go 400 miles through a desert and storm, why was he able to do that? Because he said, God loves me. I can be courageous. Remember Joshua 1, verse, chapter 1, verse 9? Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. For God is with you everywhere you go. It's not based on me being strong. It's based on him being with me. And it, it ignites courage in my life. Because let me tell you something. When you start living for God, it's going to take some courage. It doesn't matter who you are. 
You start walking by faith, you're going to have to stand up somewhere. You're going to have to stand firm. You're going to have to be courageous. You're going to have to make decisions. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to say some things, do some things that are difficult. And the only way you're going to be courageous in those situations to not do the wrong thing, the right thing, to not do the weak thing, but the strong thing, even though you're weak, is to remember that the strong God is with you, and therefore you can take courage, you can take the land, you can cross the Jordan, you can face the giants, you can go into the promised land with milk and honey and butter, by the way. But you see, the moment you forget that God loves you is the moment you will give in to fear. And then you become a coward. Then you become vulnerable. And then Satan outwits you so easily. He divides because of fear and cowardice. How many cowards are there in the church? I was watching that Selma movie, and you know, you know the biggest enemy in those times of racism, Southern Confederate flag flying racism. It wasn't those who flew the Confederate flag or who were bigots. It was those who didn't do anything at all when they knew they should have because they wanted to be acceptable. They wanted to be safe, and they knew in their hearts that they should have stood on the side of those who needed them. And that's just a metaphor for human life and human condition. The greatest enemies in this world are the nice people, the good people that don't do the courageous thing. There'll always be evil people and there'll always be obviously good people, but it's the people walking down the middle who never do anything courageous in their life. And man, those are the people that really need to understand Hased. They need to understand the courageous, steadfast love of God so they can finally take a stand and make a difference. And then you will leave a legacy of faith. Then people will remember and say, no, that wasn't, he wasn't about money or he wasn't about peacekeeping or, or compromise. He was a man. They were a people that were different, even though they lived with us. Courage comes from this superior God to an inferior person that receives humbly this love. It evicts pride. It ignites courage. Here's the second quality of the love. So superior to inferior. Here's the second thing you got to remember. I got to move quite quickly now. This love is always mediated through another. This is the coolest thing. You're you're just going to, happy Mother's Day, mamas. I'm about to bless you. This is the coolest thing. Because every, did you know how the servant, when he prays, he says, your steadfast love For my master Abraham. Did you catch that? And we Americans are like, well, why isn't he walking in this love of God for himself? Why isn't he saying your love for me? Your love for me. He doesn't say me, does he? He says my master. In fact, if you isolated the text carefully, you would see he puts God first, Abraham second, and his self a distant third place in his priority list. And what's he saying? He's saying, my acceptance to you, God, comes through and is mediated through Abraham. And Abraham becomes a picture or a type of Christ. Jesus is throughout the whole Old Testament, whether it's through the patriarchs or the kings or the priests, 
And God is constantly saying to humanity, if you want to experience my covenant love that has your back, that will provide, that will guide, if you want my love, you're going to have to get it through another. Love of God is now mediated, isn't it, through union with Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes the better than Abraham mediation. And we can claim the name of Jesus and say, love me based upon the work of Jesus, based upon the righteousness of Jesus. Love me for my master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you experience the love of God. You're like, why is that important? I'll tell you why that's important. Because again, it doesn't come down to you, does it? It comes down to the work of another. I don't have to worry about the quality of my righteousness. I can worry about the quality of my Savior. I can say, well, maybe God won't like me today because I'm not praying enough. Maybe God won't like me today because I'm not reading the Bible enough. Maybe, maybe God doesn't like me or love me today. Listen, God loves and likes us based upon our faith in Jesus and based upon the work of Jesus. Jesus earned the right for you to be accepted by God on his work on the cross and in his resurrection. And he is the line by which we experience and by which we are confident in God's love. The question for you is, do you believe in Christ? Is he your mediator, your atonement? Is he your substitute? Is he your reason for confidently saying God loves me? Or what are you trusting in if not Jesus? You going to trust in religion? That never works out. Are you going to trust in your own performance? You might have others fooled, but you don't fool God. It's always mediated through Jesus Christ. God's love is always mediated through another. God's love is based on a superior to inferior relationship, a coming down, not us going up. And finally, and I don't have time to really develop this, but... I trust you to read your Bibles and to get this from the text, but God's love is different from the world's love. It's very interesting because as soon as he gets Rebecca and he finds her for Isaac, he has to negotiate with Rebecca's brother Laban, and Laban becomes the type of the world. Laban, Rebecca's brother, is like, hey, I see this fleet of camels. And I see all this gold and bracelets, and I see that this man is a wealthy old man who wants my sister to go with him. I wonder how I can use this man. And so he goes into salesman mode. And Laban, look at the text with me really quick. Genesis 24 uh, and verse 29. It says, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. And as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah's sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He likes those escalades, doesn't he? Ooh, what can I get out of this? And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Oh, you're a spiritual man. I can be spiritual too. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for your escalades. Might there be one for me? In Genesis, you will find characters like Laban and Lot. 
like those who built the Tower of Babel. And you can see that the writer always emphasizes what they see because they're not walking by faith. They're walking by sight. And the world's kind of love is different from God's love because the world's kind of love is completely practical. It's completely utilitarian. It completely looks at objects and everything in life and says, how can I use you to get what I want? How can I con you? How can I hustle you? How can I manipulate you to put myself on a platform? That's the world as I remember it. Isn't it the world as you remember it? I, we've been reading Narnia in our home. Again, i got two little ones. I've been, I raised the two older ones on Narnia. Amen? Now i got two little ones. We're starting Narnia. So we're reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And my littlest one, she likes to say, Dad, this is getting so interesting. Right? As we talk about Aslan and the Witch. There's a, there's a book called uh, The Magician's Nephew. How many of y'all have read that book? It's great. And there's a description. C.S. Lewis describes the witch. And there's a part where the witch has a couple kids in the room with her, but it says that she doesn't pay attention to them. And C.S. Lewis remarks that the reason why the witch doesn't pay attention to the kids in that moment is because those kids can't do anything for her. And anybody who's around her who can't do anything for her, she ignores altogether. And C.S. Lewis says, that's the thing about witches. They are really practical. And we live in a very practical modern world, a pragmatic time, a utilitarian time. And therefore, the love of the world is always using other people and using things to get what they want. And that's completely opposite from God's love because God's love flows from completeness and says, it's not about what I'm going to get out of this. It's about what I can give. It's not about what I can take from you. It's what I can give. It's not about how you serve me. It's about how I can serve you. Rebecca serves the camels and the servant and feeds all the 24, five gallons of water to to the camels, but here's Laban who's looking at how many bracelets he can get. Note the contrast between steadfast love and worldly love. Worldly love is always manipulative. Worldly love is always religious. Worldly love is always practical. Hmm. Ultimately, The steadfast love sustains us as we seek to be resident exiles in this world. And let me close out this story. In Genesis 24, look at verse 62. He finally gets the woman. She's willing to go with him to a land she's never been to before. And it's funny because Rebecca is anxious to leave the world's love. Rebecca is anxious to leave her culture. Rebecca is anxious to leave this world that's only used and abused her. She's ready to go to a land even though she's never seen it. She's ready to go to a man she's never even met before. It says that she says, I am willing to go. And so the old man takes her. And look at verse 62 as we close out the love story. It says, Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahiroi. That word means the well of the living one who sees me. It's way down south um, in the desert place of Canaan. Beer Lahiroi. And was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. 
So she took her veil and covered herself, and that's not because Israelite women usually covered themselves with a veil, but when a bride was about to get married, she would cover herself with a veil. So that's marriage lingo for the ancient Near Eastern world. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah's mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And I just wrote down in my Bible that Abraham and Sarah passed on their faith. That's the ultimate legacy, isn't it? Abraham passed on his faith. And there's Isaac and Rebekah, the new patriarch, the new matriarch. Listen, the sign of legacy is when our faith is passed on to another. And when we die, it's not about people necessarily remembering us. It's more about people remembering God through the lives of those we've impacted. Isaac and Rebekah take the place of Abraham and Sarah, and there is no better legacy than leaving a legacy of faith. How might we do that? By being resident exiles sustained by the steadfast love of God. Let's pray. God, thank you just for the grace and the privilege to preach. I just, I'm so grateful um, to get to read scripture publicly, to get to teach it and preach. It's just, it's a blessing to me, and I thank you. But God, ultimately, I pray that as a preacher and as parishioners, that we would do more than just hear, but we would listen, that we would do more than just Uh, be spectators, but we would participate in this word by beginning to walk in this world as resident exiles, sustained by your steadfast love. Give us the grace to do that. And if there's no one here who believes in Jesus, give them the grace to say to Christ, you are my mediator between me and God. You are the source of receiving God's love. You are my hope. You are my confidence of the love of God. If anyone here doesn't know Christ, that is the way to experience his covenant love. Cross the line of faith, believe in Jesus, and walk as resident exiles while your citizenship is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.